This week on the Pietist Schoolman Podcast, we kick off our fourth season by starting a virtual tour of some of our favorite places in Europe. Welcome to the Pietist Schoolman Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Garrett. Joined again by Sam Mulberry. Sam, um, I think it's been about 11 months since our last... Has it been that long? It has been that long. It was December of 2017. <laughs> so, um, should we catch people? Anything new since then? Um, I made a movie. Hey, that's cool. Yeah. Where can they find the movie? Uh, if you search for Why We Teach 2018, um, just on Google or on YouTube, uh, yeah, it's great. It's a documentary. And I you shouldn't should. say it's great. You should say it's great. Uh, it is great. And <laughs> I'm also in it. So maybe That's someone right. else should say it. So if you think it's great, write in. Lots of people are saying no, it's great. I mean, it's really, if you're a teacher, if you're interested in education, especially at the higher ed level, but really any level, I think it's well worth your hour and a half for their clips you can look at kind of by person, by topic. But um, watch the movie. The movie's the thing that I like wanted to craft. I'd say so. start with the movie and then you can go back and dive deeper. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's what Sam has been doing. Kind of same old, same old over here. Uh, finished the book we had uh, talked about in season two. That's season right. three was about the Reformation. We wrapped that up. Um, I'm working on a new book. I forgot if I had announced that, but I'm working on a spiritual biography of Charles Lindbergh. So are we going to do a Lindbergh pod at some point? Because I, I need to do to. I need to do some research if I have to uh, speak into a Lindbergh pod. Yeah, the the manuscript is not due till 2020, and the book wouldn't be out till 2021. So we've okay. got some. That but might be season five or six. We'll nice. See. Yeah. We didn't know we were going to be doing season four until like a week ago, <laughs> but it, it felt like it was time. So just to catch people up, when last you heard from us, we were weighing the complicated legacies of the Protestant Reformation, and we came to the end of a season dedicated to the 500th anniversary of Luther's 95 Theses. Now, historians like us uh, tend to say the past is a foreign country, so spending podcast episodes in the 16th century was a little bit like a travelogue. But now, Sam and I are actually preparing to visit some actual foreign countries. So would you say the present is, a, is going to be a foreign country? Everything is a foreign country now. So <laughs> right. we thought we would push the travel theme even further and do a short, maybe four-part uh, fourth season on our looming trip to Western Europe. But make that trips plural, since we're actually making one trip next January with college students and then another next June with anyone who has the time and money to do that. So we'll tell you more about that. But let, let's start with the January trip here. So Sam, a little background, and then I'd like you to just talk about what this trip has been like. Sure. Um, so in about two months uh, for Bethel's J-term or interim, we're going to lead a group of 23 students on a three-week exploration of the history of World War One, with a little World War Two thrown in. So we start with eight days in London, do a day trip to Oxford, move to uh, Belgium and Northern France for a four-day battlefield tour, do about four days in Paris, and then wrap up our three weeks in uh, the city where a World War I vet named Adolf Hitler moved in 1919. That's Munich, and we go to Dachau while we're there. So this, I think, is the fourth time we'll lead that travel course. Um, Sam, what stands out about that? It's, it's a really distinctive course, I think. I think the, the big thing that stands out to me is uh, t- two things which are related. You know, because it is a course and we're because we're studying history, there's something really powerful about just walking in the footsteps of history, walking in the footsteps of the the people that we're studying. So I'm I'm always moved by that. I think um, I always try to take a few moments uh, everywhere we go to almost like step away from the group and just sort of take in like 
being here, being here where this other person was. And then I think this will be a theme as we go through the this season of the show is like what are it's kind of what are those moments that are worth taking a step back, taking a breath and kind of taking it in. The other thing though is I think there is something to thinking about location and geography as a context for the history that we're talking about and really think about location and geography as a source. Um, I think that's a that's a, a powerful piece. I feel like I understand aspects of what we're studying better because I've stood there. Mm-hmm. And, and you, I mean, I think the battlefields, you know, we'll talk about that in, in episode two. The, that's one of the mo- most powerful things about the battlefields is some of those battles, I mean, it's all senseless, but it makes more sense what they were thinking because you can see what they were looking at. Yeah, and, um, and engage all your senses. I wrote a blog post a little while ago for Anxious Bench about the smell of the past. And one mm-hmm. thing that occurred to me is you, you smell pigs, for example, in Belgium. Yeah. And, 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 I mean, so that wasn't there in 1914 to 18. Farming shut down, but then farming returned. And so, I mean, there are, there are a lot of kind of moments like that. Yeah, or even I remember the first time we went to Ypres, at the end of the day, I, I FaceTimed with my, with my wife and kids, and I showed them my shoes and my shoes were covered in this like clay because oh, yeah. like I mean you and you when you read about soldiers accounts you 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 read about the the wet clay and it's like that's what's on my feet right now and I get it yeah and to your first point uh, I mean th- I've just like been transformed by this notion of like the city is the classroom the battlefield is the classroom yeah. and you know I think right from the very beginning we might talk about this a little bit more in this episode but in London we start in Trafalgar Square which is where people gathered it right before the war, uh, Britain joined the war, and we read Bertrand Russell, who's a pacifist philosopher and mathematician, writing about being in Trafalgar Square in August 1914 and just being appalled by the kind of militarism, the jingoism of otherwise just kind of ordinary Londoners. Uh, so he was reflecting from later in life, but he still remembered the sense of, he thought mothers would ever want their sons to die, but apparently they loved that idea. And so there are a few moments like that where you kind of have like text and place and um, kind of like the sense of memory and legacy all coming together. And it's it's I mean, it's just a wonderful experience. It's a lot of work, too. So I don't mm-hmm. think we could do it more often than we do. But it's it's really a, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to get to do this every other year. With and, students. And, yeah. And you get to do uh, it, it's it's sort of like like. Uh, scenes in a movie when they they show a like a setting and then it's like they dissolve into like mm. 1920 at that same mm-hmm. spot. like you sort of get that feeling of like I think about walking through the streets of Paris and you know in 2018 and I get to turn it into you know 1920 and yeah. think about like well here's Ezra Pound's house yeah. and like and I can I can picture it and it's pretty powerful that's so cool no it's I mean like it makes by going to the foreign country, it makes the past itself a little less foreign. Like, I mean, absolutely. All absolutely. of a sudden, some of those boundaries start to dissolve. So, I hope it's easy to see why we enjoy this course. Why I think students have really found it a powerful class. But for five years now, we've heard from lots of other people who wish they could do maybe a shorter version, maybe a more summary version <laughs> of the same trip. Summary short and summary um, That's right. climate, I guess. So, I mean, former students who want to go again or who missed their chance, friends and family who never get to see us kind of be teachers are interested. And then, you know, people at churches and neighbors and others who just kind of hear about it and love the idea. Maybe podcast listeners, maybe you're even getting a little excited. Well, you're in luck because I have expanded the Pie to Schoolman empire to start a very small travel agency. Pie to Schoolman Travel will be leading its first tour next june so we'll start in london june 6th continue through munich on june 16th 
We're calling it the World Wars in Western Europe. So Sam and I will be leading this trip again. It's 11 days. Go to pietistschoolman.com slash travel to learn more. Uh, and we'll try to put links online to make that a little bit easier for you to find. But in short, what we'll do is spend three days in London, do the same four-day battlefield tour with a little bit more attention again to World War II, uh, spend like 36 hours in Paris, and then conclude with a couple of days in Munich and Dachau. So you're on your own to arrange airfare, partly to give you a little bit more flexibility at the outset and at the end if you want to do other kinds of travel. But for the low, low price of $3,395, you'll get great hotels, most meals, museum access, train tickets, subway passes, and the instruction of two pretty seasoned teachers who really like doing this trip. We're even going to do some kind of like pre-trip classes, which we'll film. Uh, we'll make available some other resources as well. So partly to help us think about that trip and to think anew about what that trip might look like for adults and maybe to whet your appetite, we're going to spend the four episodes of this season talking about four of the stops on the trip, the kind of four stages of this trip. So for each, here's what we're planning. We're each, we've come prepared to talk about four M's. So I think we'll start with a favorite uh, memorial, mm-hmm. a favorite museum, a favorite masterpiece, broadly construed, but this is getting us in the realm of art or culture, and a favorite meal, or at least restaurant at which you would eat a meal that could become a favorite of yours. That's right. So that's how we're going to play this game. Um, the next episodes won't have quite as much uh, prelude to set it up, but I think we can dive right in with, I think, Sam, we'd agree, one of our favorite cities in the world, London. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, before we get to our favorite memorial, can we just talk about, I mean, I think museum, meal, art, you know, that makes sense to people when they travel. But this is obviously distinctive of the trip. Why are memorials so important for our trips that we've done? I think because they're part of being a historian and part of looking at this war is thinking about how do we remember. And memorials are really conscious attempts at. Um, not just individual memory, but at sort of a collective memory, um, and it's and they're I mean they're deeply political because it because they're they're expensive and there's this sense of we are going to uh, we're going to try to sh- shape future memory of this I think is is uh, which is interesting to look at uh, one of the things London's just chock full of memorial oh, yeah. everywhere you go yeah. and it's always interesting to pay attention to when was that memorial built. Yeah. Because you can sort of see a shift in terms of even how contested the memory of something is. What does it mean to be British? Who who are the people who fought the war? So there's lots of, I mean, because of the British Empire, there's lots of different um, different countries who have memorials in London yeah. sort of waving their hands saying, we were there too. We died there too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think as Americans, we maybe understand this more clearly right now because memorials are so deeply contested you know mm-hmm. just think of confederate memorials civil war memorials other kinds where i mean it reminds us that i mean the past is this thing that's gone and now what we're doing is making meaning of that and we do that through history monographs through courses we teach through podcasts but we do it in a public collective way through memorials that we erect in different ways and, and that also includes things like holidays and rituals that go with them but i think one thing that's really cool about london is like Sam said, there are just so many memorials everywhere, but you don't really notice it at first. Mm-hmm. Like my guess is your average tourist just in London to enjoy London isn't there for the memorials, and maybe doesn't really recognize you pass by them. And even even some of the big ones which are jumping out oh, to yeah. yell at you, you don't notice. Yeah, or you don't know what they're there for. Right, right. right. I mean, right. so like partly this, it's a good way to just kind of train your eye right off the bat. Of you know, here's how you. 
try to be attentive to the way in which this particular past, these two world wars, are still being interpreted, still being contested, still we think have lessons to teach us, right? And, and so, like, to give you a couple, Sam, I'll let you start here with maybe the most famous World War One memorial. Yeah, I um, as I was thinking about um, thinking about my favorite memorial, um. It's hard, actually. You mentioned one of the places that that made my short list, mm. and, and and even memorial we have to think about broadly. Like yeah. one of my favorite places in London is Trafalgar Square. Um, I love the way that it plays into the trip. Mm-hmm. I love because we, like you said, we read that Bertrand Russell uh, piece, and he talks about everyone sort of uh, gathering there to to uh, excited about the war. And and I and I I'd been to to Trafalgar before, but when I walked there. The first time we went for this trip, I walked around with with different eyes, and I, because it's really a memorial to the uh, Napoleonic Wars, yeah. um, right? And and I the thought that overwhelmed me was, uh, if you were a young British person at that time, you would look at Trafalgar and say, "These are my great grandparents mm. and grandparents and parents, and this is when they put their stamp on the empire." And I'm going to be this is my chance to put my stamp on the empire and it's chilling actually mm-hmm. to think about to think about that's where they went and it was sort of like this is going to be more of this sort of the glory of war you know in terms of the way they think about it which leads to my favorite memorial yep. which is not Trafalgar but if you I love Trafalgar but if you walk down Whitehall mm-hmm. um in the middle of the how would you even talk about where this where this it's is? It's like a median or an yeah. island in the middle of the road. Yeah, so there's traffic this, is swerving around it on both sides. There, there's a memorial known as the Cenotaph, and this is this was constructed pretty soon after the war in the 20s, right? Well, there was a kind of temporary version that I okay. think was made of kind of like wood and plaster, and it was so popular that they made a more permanent one. Okay, yes, and, but not long after the war ended. Yeah, and it's it's. Very different from the memorials you'll see at Trafalgar. Different from what you might expect from a war memorial. Uh, it's called the cenotaph, uh, which means the uh, empty tomb. That's right. Um, so it, at one level, it's sort of a, a tomb, tomb to all the soldiers, tomb to unknown soldiers, which will become a theme on this mm-hmm. on this trip too. Um, and and the words on it are to the glory or the glorious dead or to the glorious. I think it's just the glorious. The glorious dead. dead. Yeah. And um, I. When I think about this trip as a whole, I'm always ha- I'm haunted by the numbers, and I'm haunted by the numbers of people they never found, and the numbers of bodies they couldn't identify, um, and it's and you know I think about again the sitting in Trafalgar and thinking here's my chance to sort of put my stamp on the glory of the empire, and then you go down the street and there's this this very plain mo- mo- uh, memorial to it, it ends up being a World War One is it World War Two ish do they do they wrap it into World War II? I'm they will. To remember. Yeah, yeah, eventually. But, I mean, the only other thing written on it, I think, is 1914 to 1918. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, and it, to, to me, it's just it's such a powerful um, divergence from the history of how we remember war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's why it stands out to me. I get chills looking at it. Mm-hmm. I get chills talking about it right now. Like, it's, it is so powerful to yeah. me. And it's right in the middle of everything. Like, it, this is one that's reaching up to to yell at you to say we won't be forgotten yeah you know and um so it's not it's not a memorial that's tucked away a lot of these are in parks or things like that this isn't there this is right in the middle of the heart of the power structures of london yeah i mean the ministry of defense is across the street foreign ministry 10 downing street is right around the corner uh, 
So there's a great cultural historian who studies memory of, of the Great War named Jay Winter, who's retired from Yale now. And he says it's like they put a tombstone in the middle of official London, mm-hmm. right? It's this, And it's, I mean, it's made, like if people are listening to this and just Googled a picture of it, they're probably wondering, like, why is this so powerful? I mean, it's, it's geometric, basically. Yeah. There's no obvious imagery except there is some service flags. But I think one thing is, like, you're kind of allowed to write your own meaning onto it. Right. It's, that's the, I mean, Lutian's, Edwin Lutian's intent. But, I mean, I think for most people in the 20s, it's kind of a reminder of, you know, never again. Yeah. You know, lest we forget. Here's, but it says 1914 to 18. But I think the fact that the only other thing on there is the glorious dead almost is, I mean, it, it makes it very easy then to fold in other wars into the meaning. And so it becomes the epicenter to this day of Remembrance Day. Which is not, I mean, it, it marks November 11th, which is the end of World War One in 1918, but it's really this all war. Um, it was like Memorial Day plus Veterans Day for us, mm-hmm. if you fold them all into one. And there's kind of this sense like, you know, we might not learn the lesson of this war. We might have to bury other people symbolically under this this memorial. And then the other thing is it's copied everywhere. I mean, there are cenotaphs around the world in every outpost of the British Empire, I think. Hong Kong has one, Belfast has one, Cape Town has one. I think Toronto or Ottawa has one. Um, there's smaller ones in other towns in London because it's so popular. So I mean that that to me that that's the greatest war memorial in the world, and it's uh, a real highlight of, of our walk. And I, and I will say, I mean, it, it comes on day one of the trip. This will be the first of many times I will be crying on the trip. And I mean, mm-hmm. like you said, like you look at a picture and you don't maybe feel that, but. When you're standing there, it yeah, it hits you. How about you, Chris? What is so? What is I'm going to pick one. This picks up nicely on something you said, which is uh, because this is the capital of a former empire, marking a world war, two world wars. You've got other countries in London vying for attention, and so we end our kind of opening walking tour um, at what's called Hyde Park Corner. And so it's literally at the corner of massive Hyde Park. Um, and right in the middle of it is another Napoleonic era. There's a Welling, there's an arch to Wellington. So you got kind of Arc de Triomphe of London. Um, but then after World War One, they've added others. So there's a machine gunner memorial. It's just very interesting. Odd. Yeah, it's very <laughs> strange. There's an artillery memorial, which is very industrial looking. And then much later, so I, um, in the 21st century, these are both after 2000, I think, two of the the, the Dominions at memorials. So one is really interesting. I won't say much about the New Zealand memorial which is all these steelies that are marked with English and Maori symbols. But the one that really catches your eye is the Australian War Memorial. So the Australian Memorial, I mean, as you kind of walk in from central London, it's off to the left. And you glance at it and you see words and you realize, oh, they're battles. And it's World War One and World War Two. So it's Gallipoli is the iconic Australian battle of World War One in 1915, this futile siege where they get bogged down and the Turks defeat them. Uh, but then you see other battles, I mean, like other World War One battles, but then you see the Tobruk, and you're like, oh, it's World War Two as well. And it's these white letters, and I don't know if they actually have water coming down or if rainfall just kind of comes We're always there in January, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so we don't know. But you get closer, and you realize, oh, there are smaller words there, too. And what they did is they've got the names of hundreds of little towns in Australia who contributed soldiers to the two world wars. And they've just colored them so that some of those letters then form the larger names of battles. But really, it's a memorial, not just it's not names of soldiers, it's names of towns, which is which is such an interesting choice. And in some ways, like almost more powerful, because I think about like communities like that. This is not just about this person went off, but these communities sent their sent the youth of, of their of their 
their community of their nation, you know, to fight and often not return. Yeah, yeah I mean, it evokes. I mean, it's like the cenotaph is powerful because it evokes the loss of the dead and the missing. But the Australian memorial evokes the loss of bereavement, you know, of people who have lost their husband or father or son or brother or best friend. And the way the communities are shattered. And, and then you start asking, but we're so far away. Like, why? Why? I mean, Australia has its own memorials. Why are they putting something in London? But then you realize Australians traveled... 10 to 15,000 miles to fight in these conflicts, right? And and it makes you think about what it means to be Australian, I think. So I, I'd love to talk to an Australian about what this means, because I know Australians do travel to Gallipoli. There are a couple of sites on the Western Front that we visit that Australians make pilgrimages to. But I, I'd love to know, like, how Australians think of, and New Zealanders, how they think about these two memorials in the former capital of the empire that they've essentially left. Um, and really, we're leaving even before the war started, but um, th this kind of marks that final break. So I, I, you know, and these are just two, and we could obviously, you probably get the sense, we could talk about 20 other memorials. Right, and that right, would be right. its own podcast, but we should move on to our second M, Museum. I'll start here. And, man, like this, again, could be a podcast unto itself. I'll, I'll start easy with the Imperial War Museum, because that's a whole day, on each, or at least a whole morning on each version of the trip. And... Is, is this the best, uh, the best military museum in the world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so it's. I mean, it's actually limited. It's only a history of the 20th century. Um, there, it's conflicts. So you can actually go to the National Army Museum in Chelsea, which uh, goes back at least the Napoleonic, a little bit to medieval wars. But the Imperial War Museum is founded even during World War One, and, and so it's one of the first senses where you know the end is a little bit in sight, and the British start thinking, how are we going to remember this? And they've been collecting artifacts, and they decide we need to have an actual museum and kind of presciently decide we're not going to make this like the official history of the war. And when it's inaugurated, uh, King George V has the statement of, like, future generations will make what they will of this, hmm. right? And, and that's part of now of the exhibit that they built for the centennial of World War One. That's this really, I think, amazing multimedia kind of immersive experience that takes you through the story of the war and they're kind of little detours you can take into subtopics. But I mean, if you just spend an hour walking through that, you'll get a pretty good understanding of I mean, why World War One happens, who fought it, the technology that was used, how different countries joined it, and then the aftermath of it. I mean, one thing that always strikes me is you get near the end and you come to this exhibit about the wounds of the war and shell shock. And they've got this amazing archival film footage of shell shock patients you know, who are spinning in place and barking like dogs or you know, someone off screen has shouted bomb or something and they clamber beneath their cot. And it's, um, again, it's one of those deeply moving moments you don't really know is coming. And then there's a World War II exhibit. There's a whole exhibit about the Holocaust with a scale model of the Auschwitz complex. There's an art gallery that's kind of amazing. And then they have special exhibits. They have a theater. I mean, and it's all free. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, and people make donations, but they they want school groups to come through. There was just um, the, I forgot what Kate is. Is she the Duchess of... Uh, Cambridge? Cambridge, maybe. So yeah. she was just there with a bunch of school kids. Like, so... It's kind of out of the way. It's in South London, so you actually have to make a little trip to get there, but it's well worth it. Um, but, I mean, I've already talked about it, so maybe that's my museum. My second one that I'll mention is a much smaller place just north of Trafalgar Square called the National Portrait Gallery. And I like that because it's very doable. Art museums are wonderful, and then sometimes I get all excited, and then, like, 45 minutes in, I'm kind of exhausted. 
this is a very small, doable museum that's not just about these wars, but it's right kind of at the heart of it. It has kind of a 20th century wing. And there's a whole room that just has like great political, diplomatic, military leaders of the world wars. There's a nice little statue of one of Britain's aces from the air war. But then you get to the next room and it's um, you kind of start to see hints of the turn towards the modern in art, which is the theme of the trip as well. And uh, we're starting to think about who deserves to be remembered. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's still elites in a sense. But now we're folding in artistic figures and women. And we're depicting them very differently. Um, I thought about this when I was watching The Crown on Netflix. And there's this wonderful episode where a, an aging Winston Churchill gets his portrait commissioned to mark a kind of anniversary he had hit. And he's disgusted with it because it shows him as this doddering old man. Hmm. And the artist meant it as a compliment, right? And his wife ended up burning it. But they've got sketches from that in the portrait gallery room. So it's it's also nice because, you know, it, it's convenient. It's central. If you just, like, have an extra half hour, you can duck in, see two rooms, and get the effect pretty It's well. also free. And so it's also yeah, free. That's a big theme with London. And right outside, another kind of portrait, because these are mostly paintings and photographs, but outside is a mammoth statue of Edith Cavell, the famous nurse who is executed by the Germans as a spy. And uh, it's kind of a different kind of portraiture right outside the National Portrait mm-hmm. Gallery. So for mine, uh, I need to start by saying that the the correct answer to this is probably the British Museum. Possibly. Um, I was looking, doing a little research for this, I was looking at a, a Forbes uh, magazine article um, where they ranked the top top museums in the world. And um, four out of the top nine you will encounter on this trip if you would like to. The British Museum, I think, was number two on that list. Um, it's... Our hotel is right across yeah, the street. It's, it's it. amazing. Yeah. You know, it is the... It's also strange to think about why are these things here. I mean, it is a big theme of being in London is realizing this used to be the capital of the world, and they brought stuff from all over their empire here. Mm -hmm. So, like, you have to wrestle with is it okay that this stuff is here? But at the same time, within a couple hours, you can see kind of history of the world Mm -hmm. in a pretty amazing sense. So that should be the right answer. Well, and I like it as an answer because it reminds us that while we're calling this the World Wars in Western Europe, I mean, this is also just you get to go to London and spend three days, and we won't do class time constantly, so right. you've got a chance to just go yeah. about Assyria if you want. Yes, if, you, if you've if you never been to London and never been to the British Museum, like, you need to go. Yeah, you do. But I'm going to pick something else, uh, which is I feel like uh, this was number nine on the Forbes oh, list, wow. is the uh, the National Gallery in London, which is... Uh, very close to the National Portrait mm-hmm. Gallery. It is the building at the end of Trafalgar Square. Uh, and it it's something I think, my sense is people don't always think about going inside of it. Oh, if we quizzed our students from the trip, like, again, it starts in Trafalgar Square and ask them what's the building just north of Trafalgar uh, If 10% could tell me it's the National Gallery, it'd be astonished. Yeah, it's, again, it's free to go in. It has a, an astonishing art collection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to read some names sure. off of people people whose art you will see there. They have uh, Botticelli's Venus and Mars, which I always like to go see. Uh, you're going to see some Joseph Turner if you want some British sure. art. You're going to see Raphael, Da Vinci, Michelangelo. So all the things, you, all the people you're going to see in the Louvre, you're going to see there as well. Um, it's a little bit more manageable. Than it, Louvre, that's well, that's that's the point I'm getting to. Yeah. Right? Is like it, it's the Louvre is scary almost. Yeah. Um, you have uh, Rembrandt, you have Van Gogh, Van Gogh Sunflowers you can see there, Rubens, Monet, Cezanne, Surratt. So, like, it's just a phenomenal uh, Western art museum, mm-hmm. and it's 
you can burn through it pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't mean that as, like burn through sounds negative, but it's like sometimes when you're traveling and you don't have a lot of days there, you think, well, do I want to spend this, you know, a long day in an art museum? Like I've I have been waiting for people at Trafalgar. Got there an hour or so early and spent 45 minutes in the National Gallery and seen just masterpieces left and right. It's a, it's it is an astonishing art collection for something that I think it's almost overlooked. And I mean, I mean, and so again, the amazingness of London is we're not even going to get to the Tate Modern, the Tate right. Britain, um, the Victorian Albert. I mean, and then you've got things like the Art Gallery in the Imperial mm-hmm. War Museum. Like one thing that I'm really glad from the outset of our January trip is that art is a kind of important theme. I mean, we, we visit two museums or two galleries at the beginning and at the end. It's one reason I'm, I'm just thrilled Sam agreed to do this in the first place, because Sam can actually do a passable job of being an art historian much better than I can. And it's it's a nice way of seeing some of the themes of the trip in a very different light and seeing the war through very different kinds of eyes and grappling with meaning in different sorts of ways. And then we can also think about Renaissance and the Middle Ages right. and other things in the 20th century. And so I'll I, I I oh, throw, sure. throw one more and I'm not sure this counts as a museum, but it's a little, it's kind of corny sometimes. But if you want like pound for pound, square inch by square inch of like walking in the footsteps of history, Tower of London is tough oh, to beat. That's true. So I just need to say that Very it's true. a little corny, but it's kind of awesome. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. Okay, so let's move on to the third M. And so this will pick up possibly in the art theme. There are lots of ways of construing masterpiece, but I, I think... If you were going to go look for one piece or one type of piece, like in London, Sam, what would it be? I struggled with this because oh, I yeah. just talked about the National Gallery and, and like there's so many things that I want to point to there. But the thing, the first time I went to London, the thing I was most excited to see, and this plays on the theme of why is this in London, is if you go to the British Museum, they have the the marbles from the Parthenon, like the, the, the pediment and the frieze of the Parthenon mm-hmm. in you know, in, uh, in in Athens on the Acropolis. Like, it's there. So you can go into this museum, again, for free, sure. and you can look at this up. You can get up close and look at the statues that Pericles and Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Themistocles and all these people, mm-hmm. like, this is what they looked at. Like, like I've never been to, to Athens. I don't know that I'll ever get to go to Athens in my life, but, like, it's amazing. It's it's stunning to me. And I the whole time I'm there I feel weird that it's there. I feel uncomfortable with the, that's there cuz I know the people of Greece would like it yeah. to not be there. But at least I got to see it. And like that's kind of amazing. Um so I I I realize it's it's complicated, but it's <laughs> it's if you're there it's really amazing. So that, that's the masterpiece. It's not a particularly British masterpiece, but sure. it speaks to empire and um if I was going to go look at one thing in the British Museum if I had 15 minutes, that's the room I would run to. Yep. Um, may I want to talk about some of the World War-ish sort of related pieces that we see. We go to the Tate Britain Gallery of Students. That, that'll be an option for the June trip. Um, Christopher Nevinson is kind of the artist we choose as a futurist who's really chastened by his experience. So on Monday I was doing an event and I talked about his famous painting called The Mitrailleuse, which is a machine gunner where the human dissolves into the machine, mm-hmm. essentially. I would say at the, the, the Tate Britain, for me, the thing that, that's most special is they have some small sculptures by a guy named Henri Gaudier-Bresga, who oh, okay. nobody knows who that is, but he was one of Ezra Pound's closest friends, and Pound memorializes him in his poetry. And he's this guy who goes and fights in the war and dies when he's like 18 or 19 so, like, we do, the world never got to see what he could have done. Right, yeah. right. 
Um, I will go a different direction and interpret art differently. And, and I will just say, see a show. <laughs> and I feel like I'm cheating here a little bit because not all of them are actually masterpieces. Like, if you go to London and see Cats, that's your choice. That's fine. Um, I think there are other shows you could see, too. I would just say one of the other many riches of being in London is you're in the center of theater. Mm -hmm. now, I mean, like there are lots of cities that have a claim. You know, I mean, hopefully you get a chance to see a Broadway show, um, you know, Moscow, Berlin. They've each got their own contributions to make here. But, you know, like go to the Globe Theater. That's nice. But like actually go see this art being practiced to this day. And, you know, wrestle with the commercialism of it sometimes. But um, I've had just some one, my best theater experiences of all. What have you seen in London? London? I'm curious. It's only three things. And so, um, I mean, with this trip, the first time we did it, we actually went to see War Horse, which... Um, it's on the nose. <laughs> yeah, it's on the nose. Notice I said used to see. Like, I mean, I think it was fine. The puppetry is, is kind of staggering. It actually used some of the sort of vortices, futurist, artistic motifs we had just seen in the Tate Britain. So that was great. Last time, uh, Sam, his wife, and I went to see In the Heights, uh, mm -hmm. which was Lin-Manuel Miranda's thing before Hamilton. And he actually was there the next day because it closed. So we missed him. Like, that was fun. The one that actually sticks out to me, the first time I spent a lot of time in London was in graduate school. And I lived in uh, London for a summer doing research at the public record office in Kew. But I'd have time and I would come in and uh, I'd read this advice like, you know, you can get kind of like an hour before shows, you get these cheap tickets, especially if you're a student. So I went to the National Theater and I saw Candide oh, wow. by Leonard Bernstein, which like doesn't sound like a very British kind of piece. But like, again, I just like had time to kill. I had a couple hours on the South Bank and I went to see Candide and I, I still think of what a day, what a day for an auto de fe every time we get to that part of the 16th century <laughs> in the Spanish Inquisition. So I, I don't have a specific masterpiece to recommend except to say like if you have an evening or an afternoon, like, there are going to be 60 to 70 shows of all different sorts and you can fold in opera and dance and other things here and, and explore. Like, see something you've never seen um, maybe because you don't get to go to New York or maybe because it's only in the West End or mm -hmm. it's somewhere else in London. So that, that's that's my advice. Okay, let's get to what I think we're most excited about. The fourth <laughs> M here is a meal in London. I'm going to cheat and do two, but they'll be right next to each other. So we'll count as one. And we're still kind of in the Trafalgar Square area. That's right. We spend a lot of time there. Yeah, it's amazing. I, for some reason, it's kind of our home in, in London. So two places I would suggest you go if you're in Trafalgar Square because you've been persuaded by what we've said about the National Gallery or Portrait Gallery or you're just kind of in the in the neighborhood, right? So one place you should go is there's a beautiful 18th century Georgian church called St. Martin's in the Fields which I got all excited about because I had seen that name everywhere in my dad's record collection because it had uh, it's a place where a guy named Neville Mariner recorded all sorts of wonderful orchestral pieces. And it's got a really strong music ministry, and it's a beautiful, it's kind of the royal family's church. But in its crypt is a restaurant, and it's just called The Crypt. And I only knew about this because Rick Steves mentioned it, but it's it's become one of the places we recommend to students as a relatively affordable but very distinctive dining experience. So it's really just a cafeteria. This will not be one of the greatest meals you eat. But if you want to just eat in a very different kind of setting. It's a cool room. It's a real cool room. And then you can kind of explore back in the crypt a little bit and, you know, then go up for church or for a concert that they do. Uh, and then right nearby is a pub called The Chandos. And this has some sort of operatic connection. There's a couple opera houses right up the street. So I think, like, this used to be a place you would go before the opera. Um I just, it's a placeholder for it. You should eat pub food, but not at like a Fuller's chain pub. So, so th this leads me uh, to my question. 
uh, if you're going to a pub, are you a fish and chips guy or a or a pie guy? I'm a pie guy. Like in America, I'm a fish and chips guy, and in other parts of London, there are fish and chip places. You should you should actually like eat fish and chips in a fish and chip place. But in a pub, like I am, I am. There are lots of good kinds of pies. Like you, you can steak go, and ale pie. That's probably a good place to start. And like, go for it. Like, enjoy the mash, the mushy peas. Um, don't get spring peas. Get mushy peas because you're in London. Like they're actually like I actually enjoy that kind of food. But um, and like if you don't like that, like curry is kind of a staple at most British pubs at this point. So again, kind of reflecting the imperial influences and how they've uh, filtered into British cuisine. Like. But there's something about just the experience of being in a pub. And, like, my favorite part of living in Kew for the public record office is there was an actual just kind of, like, neighborhood pub that was not a tourist place at all. That That's harder to find in London. Mm-hmm. But the Chandos actually does pretty well by this. And so I think it's worth finding, like, something that's not a part of a chain, which is getting harder and harder to do, that's not a sports bar, but it's actually just a pub where you kind of hang out with probably regulars and then a few tourists and just enjoy that little slice of, of English culture. Okay, Sam, what's your recommendation? So I have two. Um, One is, uh, this is kind of my honorable mention. Uh, I had to actually look up the name of it because I didn't know know what it was called. But this was the best meal that that we had. I I think you would agree, the best meal we had in London for sure. For me, it was the best meal we had on the trip. Um, uh, Where our hostel is is very close to the Tower of London. Mm -hmm. And there's a little, like, pier area Mm -hmm. that off the Thames, I don't really know exactly what that is but there's lots of people who park their very expensive uh, <laughs> yachtish things there um, and there's a number of restaurants around actually there's a number of really good restaurants around there but we went to a tapas restaurant um, called Bravas Tapas uh, in the St. Catherine Docks mm-hmm. and it was the best meal <laughs> that I had on the trip. I think it's technically Basque right wasn't that or at least some of the menu yeah. was, was Basque. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh it I, I want to be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we just got I, – I don't remember what we had because we just ordered a bunch of yeah. stuff because there were three of us. And, like, every bite of food was kind of amazing and everything we tried was kind of amazing. So yeah. so that, w- that was very fun. Um, but uh, my actual meal recommendation is very cheap. Yeah. Uh, Which is important for most of us traveling. That's right. Like, <laughs> that's even right. on this trip, you're going to want to save money once in a while. Yeah. So, so you want to save your money for dinner. So yeah. for lunch – just about as as ubiquitous as Starbucks is here. Starbucks is ubiquitous there too. Yeah. But also as ubiquitous <laughs> is uh, a restaurant called Pret. Yep. Or Pret a Manger, mm-hmm. right? Ready um, to eat. Ready to eat, yeah. right? Uh and it's it's a little uh they're very small. Some don't even have dine-in areas, mm-hmm. but they have hot food that you basically pick up and go which i know that sounds like super or america. cold food if you want right right, right. Yeah. it sounds like super america but it's really really good really uh soups sandwiches mm-hmm. salads yep. uh wraps things like that so the key is to go to pret don't pay to eat inside it costs more you have actually. to pay like a little bit a more to eat inside but don't do that and, and just get food to go and there are so many beautiful public parks mm-hmm. Um, so find a park. Uh, my some of my favorite meals we've had in in London on this trip has been when we've gotten food and then found a park and sent it. And we're doing this in January. I mean, in June. Oh, yeah. In June, it'll be so much <laughs> so nicer. Much you know. So so that would be my recommendation: is get food, eat outside, and uh, and and take in. Especially if you're a Midwesterner like us, there's so few times when you can do that. Mm-hmm. That that's the way to go. I think the last time we did it, we were in the shadow of the statue of Ferdinand Foch by yes. Victoria Station, <laughs> which right. was kind of World War One. Right, right, right. You don't have to do that if you don't want. <laughs> I was so excited. This summer in June, I spent a week at the Library of Congress doing some research for this Lindbergh book. 
And um, I was going to supper with some alumni on Capitol Hill. And so I was walking past and all of a sudden I did a double take and there was a Pret right there in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol. And I thought, yes, it's finally arriving. Because I think we came back not knowing what this was, thinking like, how do we get this like on Bethel's campus? Can we can we franchise? Something? It would be perfect for a college <clears throat> campus. It would be ideal. Yeah, I mean, like I feel bad because I'm sure if any Londoners are listening, they're rolling their eye. I mean, this is like we just talked about noodles or Panera or something. Yeah. But again, like, I think it's actually good travel advice. Save your money for a place like the Tapas Place in St. Catherine Docks and have just a really good fun outdoors lunch via Pret in London is is I think our our hard won advice. That's right. Point. Well that's how this works. Thanks for joining us for the first leg of our World Wars in Western Europe travelogue. Next week we're gonna cross the channel and explore some former battlegrounds in Belgium and France. We're gonna have to work a little bit harder on a couple of these M's. Uh, right. Memorials will not be any problem at all. That's, we're that's, lousy with memorials. That's everywhere. So if you're interested in going on this trip, visit the Pietist Schoolman and click the travel tab. You can also like Pietist Schoolman Travel on Facebook. You can read me write about the World Wars and lots of other topics at the Pietist Schoolman blog, plus every Tuesday at the Pathios blog, The Anxious Bench. The Pietist Schoolman podcast can be found at the Live from AC Second Podcast Network and the Christian Humanist Radio Network. This episode was engineered by Sam Mulberry. I'm Chris Garrett. Thanks for listening. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there, that the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming. The drums rum coming everywhere.